Our readings today are two very different, but in a way, there's common threads, two different mountaintop experiences. First one is kind of horrifying, the story of Abraham uh, almost sacrificing his only son Isaac after God's command. And the other is beautiful, but also in a way apparently scary, um, the transfiguration of Jesus when he takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain and his clothes become dazzling white and the Father's voice comes from the cloud and he's speaking with Elijah and Moses, these historical figures that represent the law and the prophets. These are kind of epiphany moments. And a lot of times in the Bible, people go up on mountains to have epiphany moments or to encounter God. Like Elijah and Moses actually went uh, to mountains. Elijah uh, in the cave with the storm and the wind and the earthquake and the fire and that famous still small voice he listens for. Uh, Or Moses going up on the mountain to get the tablets of the Ten Commandments uh, on Mount Sinai. Encountering God on a mountain is not uncommon. But the Abraham-Isaac story um, is, feels different than all those others because uh, Abraham is commanded after all of these years of waiting to finally have this, this uh, son of the promise who's going to become the father of this huge nation that's going to outnumber the sand on the shore of the sea or the stars in the heavens. This son that Abraham and Sarah had waited years and years for and now in their old age had finally received him. God says, okay, I want you to kill him now. Go up Mount Moriah with a knife and some fire and some wood and burn him up. And it's, it's horrifying. Um, and, I mean, we can't sugarcoat it. Obviously, it's, it's been an, an enigma uh, since the time that it was written and, and passed down uh, through the Jewish people, this, this story where God expects Abraham to give it all, to completely trust. And Paul points to Abraham as our father in faith to trust God that much. But I would say that maybe the story isn't quite as gruesome as it sounds at first blush. Um, if you think about the context, Abraham is an old man. Isaac is a ruddy young youth, strong enough to carry the wood uh, of the sacrifice. Um, Abraham can't carry it himself. He's got all these donkeys and mules and all these helpers. And then when they go off to offer the sacrifice, Isaac takes the, the wood for the burnt offering on his back prefiguring Christ carrying, carrying the cross. And uh, it says that Abraham ties him up. Well, how could he have forced Isaac? Isaac, once he starts being tied up, he's like, okay, I guess I'm the sacrifice. You think he's just going to willingly uh, let him do that unless he is somehow cooperating as well, that Isaac is also making an offering of himself? And then at the last moment, when the angel stays the hand of Abraham and he says, no, look in the thicket in the thorn bush, and you'll find a ram caught by its horns. That's the offering I want. But I've seen your trust, Abraham, and you will be rewarded. That ram in the thicket, the church fathers always saw as Jesus with the crown of thorns, uh, as the lamb of sacrifice, the pure lamb, who, who this whole experience was a prefiguring of what God, how much God loves us as to give his only son. That he never intended, apparently, that Isaac would be killed, but simply, they were acting out in a way, a prefigurement of how much God would give for us. But they had no idea the significance of what they were doing. They simply trusted God, going on this instinct. Um, in the transfiguration, Peter and James and John see this beautiful experience. They, they go up and have a privileged glimpse into the life of Christ, the, this Jesus whom they've been following around for three years. 
And they've seen miracles. They've seen the multiplication of the fish and the loaves. They've seen people uh, healed of, of sicknesses like leprosy and paralysis. But now they really, like, see him. He becomes dazzling white. He, his divinity, in a way, shines through, uh, through his humanity. And this miraculous encounter with Elijah and Moses on the mountain and the voice from the cloud, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter is terrified, but he's still like, I want to stay here. Let me build you a tent. I'll build you a tent for you, Jesus, and you, Elijah, and you, Moses. Let's stay here. This is such a beautiful experience. I, I can't put words to it, but I, I want to abide here. And of course, it can't. It evanesces, and then it's just him and Jesus alone, and James and John, and they have to go back down the mountain. And, Peter, and Jesus gives them this cryptic message that don't tell anybody that you saw this until after the Son of Man rises from the dead. And they're like, rises from the dead? Hmm, I wonder what that means. And shortly after, if you read in Mark, he talks about how the Son of Man must suffer, be handed over to sinners, and on the third day rise again. He's, pre, he's, he's foreshadowing his suffering. But they still, they don't get it. They, they don't understand the significance yet. And they don't know how hard the, the coming times will be. They, they're sort of fixated right now on this mountaintop high. So in a way, that there are two kind of sides of the same coin. They're opposite experiences. It's Abraham and Isaac kind of walking through the dark of God's will and not really understanding how this is going to work out. They're just in the darkness, just in the death. But all the while, we know that God has this plan and that this is somehow ingredient in, in his revealing of his love and his will for us. And the same with Peter, James, and John. They're caught up in the cloud of, of euphoria and ecstasy and saying, wow, I would do anything for you, Jesus. Look at you. You're amazing. But they have to come down from that mountain. They don't yet see how hard it will be. And this is, I think, emblematic of our human experience of the spiritual life. I don't know if you've ever felt this, that you just aren't getting the full picture. You don't see everything that's going on. And maybe you don't feel the way you used to feel good or bad. You don't, you don't, you don't feel that same savor of doing God's will and, and loving him and praying and uh, living the spiritual life, doing works of charity. Um, or you get the sense that like, okay, I'm on, I'm on a mountaintop experience. Like I just did seek or, or a retreat or something. And I, I would do anything for God, but then you come down the mountain and, and you're like, wait, I, it's not exactly the way, the way I thought it would be. I've told this story before, but a big turning point for me in my life was when I was in seminary and I went on a, a retreat and I had an experience like the transfiguration of Jesus. And like he was, he had been there in front of me all the time in the Eucharist, but now I could see him in a different way. And my first thought was I could be happy as a priest. And it addressed all these fears in my heart that I didn't even real, realize were there, that I was trying to follow God's will for my life. But I had this doubt. I had this fear that like he wouldn't provide for me if I really trusted in him. But all of those fears in that moment were just kind of like assuaged. And I, I felt this trust that I, that I could follow him, that if this is how good he is, if this is how much he loves me, then I can't fail in following him. But I also remember years later, I went back to the same place I did that retreat. And I, it was like in the same church, same time of night. I tried to go and find the same pew that I was sitting in to recreate that feeling. And of course it didn't happen. And what I realized was that part of why I felt that joy in that moment was because I wasn't in control. I, I had surrendered control. I wasn't trying to make myself feel something. I was just putting myself in a place to be found by Jesus. And that I wasn't pursuing, so to speak, joy 
I was pursuing him. I was pursuing, pursuing Christ, trying to please him with my life. And that's where he found me. And I think that that's maybe what we can take as a Lenten lesson. Is that feelings, feelings are good. Our deep, affective heart movements are often how God draws us into a more loving or trusting relationship with him. It's, it's that feeling of being drawn into something beautiful or true or good. That we, we get this feeling that, wow, that's really you, Lord. And I, I want to pursue you. I want to follow you. He draws us forward with the, with the feelings of our heart. But our hearts are small, and, and our eyes don't see everything. Often the significance of our experiences are hidden from us for a time. And so there are, there are times we have to transcend our own feelings, our own emotions. And not, I guess this is the point, that if you try to pursue joy for its own sake, and every moment, and when you're not happy, you're like, why am I, why am I not happy? I've got to go try to find something to make me happy. That's often when we get ourselves in trouble. When we feel that desolation, that distance from God, and we think, something's wrong, I've got to do something to fix it, rather than entering into whatever God's plan is, whatever our Abraham-Isaac moment is, or whatever our Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners, that dark feeling of, of pursuing God and, and, and following him in spite of it not feeling right, going on into the resurrection, going on into that moment when God provides for us. Um, if we're pursuing joy for its own sake or happiness, a surface level of feeling comfort or peace, then we'll never truly have the abiding peace that God wants us to have. But if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, whether we see him in his transfigured glory or whether we see him in the form of a slave crucified for us, whatever he may take the form of, whatever he's calling us to do to follow him, if we do that, then the joy will come. Then we know that we are following the one that can provide.